0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
1: And as we walked out, this guy standing amidst all what I assumed were, of course, Lennon fans, um, started bugging us and saying, Did you talk to him? What'd you talk about? What were you in there for? That kind of questions. Bert assumed that he was a fan, too. And to shut him up, gave him a copy of Double Fantasy. He had an extra one and said, here, John and Yoko will be coming out in a minute. You can have him sign it then. And John signed the guy's copy for him. I started to, uh, you know, wave goodbye and then started to walk away. And the creepy guy started following me one reason that i still feel guilty to this day is why didn't i go to the security department of the dakota and say get rid of this guy he's bothersome he shouldn't be around
2: i just quickly want to make you aware there are loads of in-depth interviews on this channel all you got to do is hunt around you'll find them and there'll be something for you and don't forget please Subscribe, it helps me and it alerts you to when I've uploaded a new interview on the channel. Laurie Kay, welcome. This is another pleasure. I seem to be having pleasure after pleasure every week talking to people who, um, have well, it's not that you've necessarily lived the most interesting life, uh, but you've had. An experience um, that no one really has had. You've been close to a situation that moved everyone um, on the planet. And your book is called Confessions of a Rock and Roll Name Dropper, My Life Leading Up to John Lennon's Last Interview. First of all, I want to ask you because you've been um a journalist, you've worked in radio. Um, most of your life, and particularly up to this point where you interviewed John Lennon, but it still took you years and years and years. I mean, his death is over 40 years ago to write a book. Why did that take so long?
1: Well, there are a number of reasons that it took me nearly 40 years to start writing the book, almost four decades. It's been 43 years plus since he's passed away on December 8th. And the reason that it took me so long is that not only was I feeling far too miserable, and yes, extremely guilty to sit down and put together my story on paper, but I was also far too busy contemplating slowly but surely coordinating my upcoming career changes, going from radio and music to TV production so that took a lot of work. And I, as I was heading uh, originally from radio to print, uh, reg- and then eventually over to TV and video writing and production, um, my freelance and far beyond full-time gigs kept me wrapped up multiple hours of each and every day of the week and often nights of the week as well. So sadly, I had no time to even think about concentrating on and coming up with my book. And it wasn't until, frankly, the pandemic hit that TV production came to a close and I had time all of a sudden. Plus, my mother had already passed away and I'd been very concerned about writing my book and putting it out while she was still alive because I knew she'd be very embarrassed and I didn't want that to happen either.
2: Now, the book is book-ended with the story of the interview. Um, And I wanna take you back to the day that you found out that you were gonna have an interview with John Lennon and you were gonna meet John Lennon and Yoko Ono on a particular day. I presume you were um, a young woman at that time. Do you remember how old you were?
1: Yes, I I had just turned 25.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly young to get an interview with John Lennon and Yoko Ono. What was your feeling at that time And what was your truthful impressions of them before you met them?
1: Well, I should say that a year and a half before that, um, we had interviewed Paul McCartney and Linda and Wings in London, which was very cool. And then six months or so before that, I solo interviewed George Harrison, which was amazing and loved that because... You know, of course, they were all my favorite Beatles. The only Beatle I haven't interviewed is Ringo, sad to say. Um, But it was very cool because way before then, back when I was 21, I was given the job to write and co-produce. RKO Presents the Beatles, which was a 14 hour Beatles special, the longest Beatles special ever created in the United States. And um, after it aired in 78, because it took well over a year to write and and produce for for the three of us, Dave Sholin, uh, our music director, and Ron Hummel, our uh, engineer technical producer. um, it, It took so long that when it aired, Uh, on all the RKO stations, it was extremely popular. And then after that, it got syndicated. We expanded it to 17 hours and we were able to change the title to the one that I came up with originally and wanted to call it The Beatles from Liverpool to Legend. So based on that is why I'm sure we got all of the Beatles interviews following that. And since the John and Yoko interview, was the only one given to um, radio following the release of Double Fantasy. Um, I'm pretty sure that one of the main reasons is, yes, we would had incredible success with RKO Presents The Beatles, The Beatles from Liverpool to Legend. Plus I'd also heard a rumor a while after that, that um, John had actually been talking to Paul and said, is there anybody you recommend to do interviews? Cause we're only gonna do one. And supposedly Paul had had such a great experience with us, which actually we did, um, that he said, uh, yeah, the RKO team was great. So I don't know if that's really true, but uh, it always makes me feel good to think about that. And I was incredibly excited at the thought of interviewing John and, of course, Yoko as well, because John hadn't made music in just about five years. He had basically not been a musician um, in public at all. And in fact, he said that he hadn't been a musician at all, that his guitar had been hanging over their bed for five years, and he hadn't taken it down and played it, which I don't know. He might have been exaggerating. But, um, it was still just the thought of of being with the two of them was so amazing because he had always been my idol. I loved all the Beatles, and especially John. So it was really great.
2: I mean, you obviously knew a lot about, okay, you'd, you'd interviewed Paul McCartney, you'd, you'd interviewed George Harrison, George Martin, um, I believe that you'd you'd met as well. And um, you must have approached the research um, at that time because Double Fantasy had come out a couple of weeks before, I believe. And you must have said to yourself, okay, what am I going to ask? But what are, what is the angle I am going to go on? What did you come up with And what were the special instructions you received?
1: Well, we were told right off the bat, this is all about John Lennon's present, not his past. You don't ask about the Beatles. You don't ask about his past life or relationships or anything in the past at all, Um, especially not his separation from Yoko, that sort of thing. So... When we were flying out to New York from the West Coast, um, the, um, the, our team, Dave and Ron and I, and also Bert Keen from Warner Brothers Geffen, he was the executive uh, who helped us get the uh, interview in the first place. Um, and I was coming up with the questions we were going to ask, Dave and I were going to ask. Um, I concentrated on double fantasy and um, coming back to music. And uh, it was hard because I really wanted, of course, to talk about Paul McCartney and his relationship with the Beatles and breaking up and would they get back together. But we were told, no, you don't bring it up. And the cool thing was, is during the interview, John brought it up.
2: Before we get to that, um, I find it fascinating that you and Dave the interview together you just said that you researched the questions um what was dave's input and how does it work when you're doing an interview when two of you are doing an interview
1: well dave had a lot of input as well and we talked about the questions together but being a news person and a newscaster at the time um i of course was very used to doing interviews and asking questions Not just in writing them down in advance, but coming up with them as you're talking. So um, that's something that he really appreciated and had for years. And I'd um, not only done a lot of interviews, um, but of course, I'd written a lot of um, RKO radio specials. And so that helped you know, his decision to have me come along. And plus we were friends and we had a great time together as well as um, with Ron too, the three of us had been to London together to interview Paul and Linda and Wings. And, um, and it was fun having Bert there too. Um, And the thing was that when we did start the interview, um, Bert wanted to ask, especially about how John spent his day with his son, because Bert had his son almost the exact same age. And um, that's why we ended up talking about um, John being a, a house husband and father for, for so very long. And that's why I really felt the urge at some point to say, okay, let's talk about making music now. And John had said, yes, are we talking about raising children? Or are we here to talk about music? And I said, "Oh, definitely music." And it was very funny because his reaction was um, extremely positive. And when I asked him, you know, what what happened? Uh, how how did you start making music again? He said, "Oh, it came over me all of a sudden, love. I don't know what came over me." And I said, "I know. It was like you were possessed." And he said. Yes, I was possessed by the rock and roll devil, you know, and this was just so typical of his sense of humor and making me laugh. And this was pretty much in the beginning, you know, the first hour of being with them, And I just started laughing. We all started laughing hysterically. And I thought, is it going to be funny when we keep going? Or was this the funny part? And then all of a sudden, he looked at me and he said, i was possessed by the rock and roll devil and it was funny and made me laugh from then on
2: i mean the night before you were in new york um and there must have been some trepidation of doing this interview because because it was such an important um moment um for john being away from the scene and having this um new album being back with yoko Um, looking after Sean for all those years. And for you, this is a momentous interview, irrelevant of what happened afterwards, just purely before. This is still a big, big interview. Um, How did you view it before and with what trepidation did you approach it?
1: Well, to a great extent, I was terrified. Because I felt that John and Yoko were such incredible intellectuals that if I didn't come off as being smart and a news person and a special writer and everything, then I would just be some stupid interviewer asking lame questions and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to ask questions that would really please him. And to my complimentary uh experience with John, it was amazing because he validated me and my questions and the comments I came up with. And when he couldn't think of something and I came up with an answer, he was like, yes, exactly, love. And he would look at me like I was a, a, a smart and best friend of his. And it was amazing. So it it was really scary the night before. And even though um, my uh, RKO team and I all sat in one of our hotel rooms together and drank hot chocolate and talked about the interview and and tried to relax and, and be calm about it. Um, it was still something I was really concerned
2: about. When, when you were there, the, you initially um, talked to Yoko because John was out of the room having photographs taken. Can you tell me about that and what relevance that had for you?
1: Well, John and Yoko had both spent the morning with Annie Leibovitz uh, from Rolling Stone taking photographs upstairs in their apartment. And when we were um, taken into their private office uh, from the assistant's public office, Um, And we were waiting and setting up, uh, Ron was setting up the um, tape recorders and and all that sort of things. Um, I was really nervous because Annie Leibovitz, although a great photographer, I'll admit that, and the photo she took turned out to be incredible. Can Um, you
2: describe the photo? Because it's a very famous photo.
1: Yeah, the famous photo, uh, the most famous photo was the one with John Lennon naked and laying down on the floor next to Yoko Ono fully, fully dressed and it was a perfect example of their relationship, John taking that extra step. and um, But of course I hadn't seen that when I heard that they were upstairs with Annie Leibovitz and I got really upset because I had had experience with Annie Leibovitz myself the year before when I was a newscaster in Seattle and um, I worked a very early morning shift. I had to be in the office by 5 a.m. And I was approached by um, a big publicist in town uh, in Seattle saying, Lori, can you please come to Annie Leibovitz's, uh big lecture before her show at the University of Washington, and then afterwards do an interview with her and feature it on your newscast the next day. So we'll have a lot of people coming to the show. And I said, oh, gee, it's going to be hard because she'll be late and I have to be in the office so early. And this publicist really begged me and I said, "Okay, I will. So I went and I sat through her interview, which was late. And afterwards, I ran up to her um, backstage and I said, hi, Annie, I'm Lori Kay from King AM Radio, and I'm ready to do our interview. Uh, And she looked at me and she basically told me I was lying because why anyone would schedule a radio interview with a photographer was ridiculous to her. And I was furious and I wanted to smack her, but I didn't. Instead, I ran away and I thought, I will never deal with this woman again. And here I was on what I was looking at as the best day of my life. And Annie Leibovitz was (laughs) a couple hundred feet away from me. But thank God she did not come down to the office um, with either Yoko or John. John was up there doing solo photos afterwards with her. And so I never have had to see her or work with her or talk with her again.
2: One thing that came up and um, in the book, which I found absolutely fascinating because when Yoko speaks, it's really a mature woman speaking in depth about mature subjects and yet, her astrologer wanted to know from you birth dates and from Dave birth dates to find out what day this interview should take place. So, when you heard that, what did you think initially?
1: Well, that was one of the things to, that led to the guilt that I felt after all these years, because before the interview was dated, um, What happened was we were told that a representative from Yoko's astrologer was going to be calling and asking us each questions, our birthday, our time of birth, a couple other things. And that's how they would determine what day would be best to set up the interview. And the weird thing is, is during that period of December, John and Yoko had originally planned to be on the West Coast, and then in Hawaii. But after getting all of our birth date information, all the et cetera, um, uh, for some reason, the astrologer came up with December 8th, 1980, as the day to schedule the interview. So John and Yoko did. They canceled their travel plans and stayed in town. And that's when we, well, actually, we traveled out the day before, the evening before. And... I still to this day can't believe that that would happen because it turned out to be the most tragic day on earth for me, you know? And so how that could happen is is terribly sad.
2: One of the really charming things that you did for this interview is that you took a toy for Sean and you also took um, the book, Grapefruit which is Yoko Ono's um, initial book and artwork, which is fantastic. Um, First of all, why did you decide to take these with you? And what was your relation to Yoko Ono's work?
1: Well, first of all, I should say that it was a big deal for me that when I interviewed people, I would bring them something. And for example, when we went to London and interviewed Paul McCartney, we brought him a bottle of his favorite booze. <laughs> and he was thrilled. <laughs> it was it was amazing. And um, he and, and and Linda were both uh, super excited. Great big bottle. And so I wasn't going to bring that to, to John. Um, but what I did want to do was think, well, let's see. The most exciting thing to John right now is his son. I'll bring his son something cool. So I went to Um, Chinatown in in San Francisco, and I got Sean a wind-up fire-breathing dragon that walked and lit up and moved his arms and everything. And to this day, I don't know, honestly, if Sean ever received that, because first of all, when I showed it to Yoko, she said, oh my God, John is going to love this. I don't know if we're going to give it to Sean. We just might want to play with this ourselves. And when John finally saw it, what he did was he wound it up and he walked it along the huge coffee table and just kept saying, wow, this is great. And he also said, I don't know if we're going to give it to Sean. So maybe they didn't. And of course he was shot and killed that night. So maybe Sean never got it, you know, Um, because it would have been a, tragic recommendation. I mean a tragic remembrance for him of of who interviewed his father before he was killed. So um that was the gift for Sean and it was amazing that John and Yoko loved it so much too. I was really happy about that. And um and Sean uh would have loved it as John said, because John said, oh yes my boy and all boys, they love monsters and they love, you know, things like that. So he would have. Um, and the reason that I brought my copy of Grapefruit um, for John and Yoko was to get it interviewed. This is my copy. And I had bought it several years before on the discount table of a bookstore in Berkeley. And the cool thing was I had always wanted this book and couldn't afford it as a student. But then when it was discounted, I bought it. And of course, I had no idea that was just in a handful of years, I would be not only interviewing Yoko, but her husband as well. It was amazing. And one of the coolest things about bringing the book is that John and Yoko were super excited because they hadn't seen a copy in years so the fact that I would have them amazingly made us friends right off the bat and the coolest thing was is at the end of our interview when Yoko was saying oh I'm ready to to, um, autograph grapefruit for you this is amazing and John said well I wrote the interview of the book the the introduction please can I autograph it too and I said Yes, of course, I want you to, and they both did, they both gave me amazing interviews, and John gave a great cartoon of of him and Yoko as well, and this is still probably the best possession I have in my life, and the other amazing thing about the book is that afterwards when John said, wow, you know, I'm so happy to, uh, to um, autograph the book for you. And he said, and you know, that's how I am. I like people to autograph their books for me too. And I said, well, great, John, because when I write my book, I'll autograph and send you a copy. And he looked at me and he said, great. So immediately I thought, yes, I'm writing my book right away so I can send it to John. And to this day, 43 plus years later, all I want to do is be able to autograph and send him a copy. If I could send him a heavenly copy, I would.
2: Now you write in the book that you you were in awe of Yoko Ono, but um, and I must admit I was always a fan of of her art, um, but you weren't particularly connected let's put it that way, you you know, you didn't have a connection to her art, but you were in awe of her. So tell me what you were in awe of, what was it?
1: Well, I should explain that conceptual art, which was Yoko's field, was not my thing, to be very honest. Um, I didn't know a lot about it, but I did love her um, book, Grapefruit. I loved reading her her poetry and her thoughts and um, seeing the art in that book. Um, But the real reason that I was just so amazed by Yoko is her ability to bring John Lennon into not just a love affair, but a marriage and a wonderful, happy marriage. And to be able to, at the time that they weren't getting along, uh, tell him, no, it's time for you to leave and try something else, have a love affair in Los Angeles. And then when John, you know, would come back to her and and try to get back together, finally, they did. And they started their relationship again. And it was better than ever to hear them talk about it. So I was just in awe of her. And I really liked Yoko. And when she came into the um, private office for uh, the interview. Um, she apologized for being there without John while he was still taking pictures upstairs. And I said, "No, it's great. We can talk. I have wonderful questions to ask you." And even not being interviewed, and I, I felt that she absolutely agreed. Not just because I was the only other woman in the room, but. She, like I said, she was so excited to see that I had a copy of Grapefruit. I think that really kicked her off right off the bat.
2: That first part, well, I mean, obviously it's part, the first part of the interview of them both, but the the interview with Yoko Ono at first is um, a lot about feminism. And she talks about that the sixties were the sexual revolution for men and the seventies were the sexual revolution for women. I just wondered, because I feel there is some deep connection between you as an interviewer and Yoko during that, how did you relate to her as a woman and what she was saying?
1: Well, I loved what she was saying because I should say that, and this is very clearly emphasized in my book, that I had not had a lasting relationship like she had, up to that point. So what I wanted to get from her was what's the key to having a wonderful relationship like she was with John. And I got that because what she was talking about was the 80s were going to be the era of a dialogue between men and women. And that's what double fantasy was about. And that's how she and John had created it. A dialogue between themselves turned into songs that John would sing to her, then that would prompt a, an answer from her and she would write a song and sing it to him and that went back and forth and back and forth and that was how they were planning to suggest to men and women start their new dialogues to to improve their relationships so i took that immediately as very important okay i have to begin dialogues now when i when i start a relationship and really focus on that.
2: Yoko Ono was at that point and had been for a long time, probably one of the most vilified people unfairly on the planet. And she does touch on that. Um, And it's quite hard. I found it quite hard to hear that because you, you know that that's a fact she was vilified. And it was a terrible thing that she was. But for someone to know it, and to express it, it's quite tough. So I wondered how you felt being in, being there and hearing that come out of her mouth.
1: Well, 99% of the people on the planet blamed Yoko for breaking up the Beatles, which is absolutely ridiculous, because they had broken up for many other reasons, and they all wanted to do separate things. and have relationships and that sort of thing. And and um, so I thought it was horrible that people were blaming Yoko and I never did. And I let her know that. And of course let John know that um, when he brought up the, the Beatles. Uh, and it was just, it was so tragic for me to think of Yoko being vilified and blamed for something as ridiculous as that, when really what she had done was made John's life so incredible and so creative and helped him continue with with everything that he needed to. And it was was just really tough looking at that.
2: I mean, she talks about this dialogue and she also um, talks about the difference between let's say, conceptual art or difference between art and popular music and that her understanding had changed over the years. Can you tell me what she said about that?
1: Well, what she said, of course, was that she'd been a conceptual artist, knowing nothing pretty much about pop music, and that's a way that John completely helped her. And she was so grateful because that enabled her to help create pop music, and the first music that they recorded, Two Virgins, their album, which was actually on the night of their very first date, um, it was really fun because John did impressions of Yoko and how she sang, and Yoko talked about John's music and what he was creating. And they were just obviously so very much in love with each other's talent. It was
2: wonderful. The interview with Laurie Kay on John Lennon continues in a moment, but please don't forget to subscribe. It helps me, but more importantly, it alerts you to when I've uploaded a new interview on the channel. Okay, let's get back to John Lennon with Laurie Kay. <laughs> There's one question that you ask, you ask, how do you recognize between you that there was a spiritual bond? Um, it's a fantastic question. Uh, and I wondered what that question you, you've touched on it a little bit about your own relationships up to that point. Um, but clearly, it's that question is also for you.
1: Well, yes. Um, and. John related to Yoko right away when he saw her work at the art show where he originally met her, um, which was 14 years before our interview. They they met back in 1966 in London at at Yoko's art show. And even though Yoko had no idea who John even was, um, John saw things like her conceptual artwork and the fact that on the ceiling she had a symbol that said yes and and they they talked um about um what it would take for for John to be able to participate and and um you can read the whole thing in my book it, it was very fun uh and um they just automatically related to each other and even though it turned out to be two years before they had their first date, uh, John thought about her a lot and was thrilled to be able to finally have her as a guest to his house. It was his house that he still had with his first wife, who was Cynthia, who was out of town at the time. And and they had pretty much broken up already by then. And um, Yoko came over and He said they didn't know what to do, so they decided, oh, well, let's make music, and John took her up to what he called his studio, and uh, upstairs, which is basically just a room with a lot of uh, tape machines, and um, they started making music together, and that really set it off, and even though a lot of people thought Two Virgins was a very weird album. It was such an amazing first step for them. And um, I loved
2: it. She talks about the three songs on Double Fantasy, which are her favourites. It's like Starting Over, Woman and Watching the Wheels. What are the significance? What's the significance of those songs, do you think?
1: Well, she especially loved Watching the Wheels. That was her number one favourite song, she told me, because it helped her understand how John felt about the five years being in a family, being a house husband and raising their son. And that was amazing to her. She loved that. And she loved those all three songs. But Watching the Wheels, as I said, was the one that really was her favorite. But even listening to Starting Over, she said, just made her so excited and not just hearing it all the time in the studio when they were recording it and replaying it, but then getting to hear it on the radio because it was the very first single released. She was thrilled.
0: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
2: There's um, a point where John comes into the room. He sort of barges in. Um, Tell me about that point for you. and How did he break the ice?
1: Well, Yoko and I and Dave had all been talking about the dialogue between men and women that um, double fantasy was prompting. And then all of a sudden the door to the office opened a crack and I looked up, I was sitting on the love seat in front of this amazing long coffee table. It was a big, long glass coffee table with metal legs and man-made serpents winding up the legs. And it was so cool. I would keep looking down at it and thinking, wow, am I really here with, with, about to be with John and Yoko. Amazing. And then the door opened a crack and I looked up over the coffee table and I saw John's nose and his glasses coming through the crack in the door. And he opened the door and um, started to say hello. And being the smart ass that I am, I couldn't help but under my breath basically say, can't you see we're in the middle of an interview? And he looked at me and he started laughing and immediately came and sat down right next to me on the love seat. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to sit right next to John Lennon for the rest of the afternoon. This is so incredible. And I was thrilled. And then the interview with all three of us started. And John was amazingly, as I mentioned, complimentary to me all the way through the interview and validated me more than anybody else had ever in my life practically.
2: There are some amazing points in this interview. And and that is because um, both you and Dave have a very great connection in this interview. And also I think sort of Yoko facilitates John's openness by being there, you can sort of, she doesn't really try and butt in or take over. She just sort of facilitates him being there. And when he talks about his typical day, um, how he spends it with with Sean at breakfast, and, and then maybe in the afternoon, he does some things on his own and he comes back and he makes sure that he eats something healthy for tea. And he talks generally about general things that we all, uh, Well, if you you have children, but we all have in our lives, which is about the type of food we eat, about the, you know, how we regulate our day, what we've done, and so on and so forth. Extremely human things. And those aspects juxtaposed against what was later to happen bring this humanity across. At the time, what did you, what was going through your mind when he was talking about those aspects? Because the interview must have had a particular goal you were I believe it was going to go out on Valentine's Day so the goal was was slightly maybe slightly different than hearing about those daily aspects or was that what you wanted to hear about
1: well I should say that as much as I cared about John and Yoko and how John spent his daily life and loved his son and everything not being a mother myself, not ever wanting to be a mother and have my own children, and not being even in a relationship, um, I didn't want to talk about that for way too long. And as I mentioned before, it was Bert Keene from the record company who had this son who really wanted to hear about raising Sean and did he go to school and was he in kindergarten? And he wasn't. Uh, John didn't have him in kindergarten and um, that that actually was pretty interesting but um, but in
2: retrospect it's very poignant isn't it in retrospect not at the time I can understand exactly what you're saying but in retrospect it makes the interview even more poignant and more um, the situation more tragic
1: well yes but that's why at one point when John also came in and and felt the same way obviously and said are we here to talk about music or are we here to talk about raising children and that's when i came up with the yes let's talk about music and that's one of the reasons that he was so positive about me and my questions and responses and everything. And I should say that um, he was very complimentary about Yoko throughout the whole interview. And he did say, you know, if you want to ask Yoko a question and you don't want me to say anything, just let me know. And I laughed and I said, no, no, both of you are fine. And Yoko did not interrupt so much but she did jump in and sometimes correct john or add a point or something like that and um and john was very agreeable about that
2: one thing that happens when i do interviews it's like you know when you your friends you find out later in life that they've also had similar broken backgrounds. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Sometimes you find out that the connection you have between your friends that you didn't really know about, the reason you became friends with them is because somehow they reflect your backgrounds. And in a sense, um you and John and I come from a, a dysfunctional family with a, an absent father. Um you had um quite a tough childhood. Um do you think there was a connection because you write in the book that you were going to see them again afterwards um, that you felt in a sense, there was a connection between you two.
1: I absolutely felt that we had so much in common that we were all going to be friends. Um, Not just me and Yoko and John, but especially me and John, because as you mentioned, the family upbringing, neither one of us, we raised by a father in our life. And actually, either a mother, even though I had a mother with me, she didn't really raise me. And um, John had the same situation. And not only that, but as we talked about things, there were so many similarities that came up. Um, for example, we were talking at one point about um, what made him want to write certain things or say certain things in songs. And he said, well, I wanna let people know things, you know, just like I would let friends know. And he said, for example, about how great the island of Bali is and how much I loved it. And I had just come back from living on Bali for, you know, a a handful of years before where I'd I'd gone to Bali to study Balinese dance and um, teach English as a second language. And I loved it there. And just the fact that John said that he loved it there himself and told all of his friends how amazing it was, that was something that I had done too. So I felt that's another thing we have in common. And there were a number of things like that, things he brought up. um, For example, my nickname in um, high school had been the Mad Banana. And at one point, he was talking about how... He and Yoko were bananas. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, who would bring that up? but somebody that I was very much in common with.
2: So it was super cool. Do you think for both of you, music, I mean, I suppose it was for me as well. You know, as a teenage young gay guy, when I was 13 in 72 or whatever, and I saw Bowie, Bowie was the representation of a world that I wanted to belong to rather than the world of my parents, I presume music was an escape from your childhood. Is that true? What did it provide you with?
1: Music started to be an escape from my childhood when I was even younger than a toddler. Um, It was what I did, what I listened to, what I turned to in order to not have to listen to my mother or my grandparents. And I was very lucky to have gotten a transistor radio while I was a toddler with um, earplugs. And so at night in bed, I put them in and I listened to the radio all night long. And as a toddler, I was listening to incredible music. Everybody from Elvis Presley to Little Richard on the radio. And then finally, the Beach Boys. That was amazing. And then following that, the Beatles became my number one favorites on the transistor. So yes, music continued even long after that um, up through high school and beyond um, to rule my life basically. And it was amazing when I was able to go to concerts finally and the first concert I was able to go to, I still can't even believe it, was the Beatles at Dodger Stadium in 1966 when I was still in elementary school. Um, A friend of mine had a birthday party, and her mother wanted to go see the Beatles in concert, so bought a few tickets so she could take friends too, and I was one of the friends they took, and even though what I remember from that concert is basically a lot of screaming girls standing up and jumping around, it was still, I was there, I saw the Beatles as a kid, so that was amazing, and from then on, every concert I saw was incredible.
2: I mean, one of the things you mentioned before the interview was the direction that John didn't want to talk about his past. He didn't want to talk about the Beatles, but he did. He talks about um, Paul McCartney, and he's the one that brings up Paul. Can you tell me in what context he brought him up?
1: Well, when he was talking about um, having met Yoko and, and that story, First of all, he gave us all these incredible details that I never thought that he would mention because we were told not to bring up the past, but he did anyway. And then at one point, um, when he was talking about the music that he and Yoko had created together over the years and continuing with Double Fantasy, he said that what he really wanted to do for the rest of his creative life was not just record music with Yoko, but play with her as well, live, and how cool that was, because really, that made him an incredible talent scout, because the only other person that he had really discovered like that, and um, asked to create with him, was Paul McCartney, and that brought up his meet-up with Paul, and um, how he asked him to join his band at the time, and Paul saying yes the next day, and it was John saying, wow, I'm an amazing talent scout. And um, that not only made me laugh and and be happy uh, because he had brought up Paul, but um, just to think about, that's how he looked at Yoko, right up there with Paul McCartney.
2: He also sees the positive influence on um, from Yoko on bands like, like the B-52s or Lena Lovitch.
1: Absolutely. He said that they basically copied her style um on uh, two virgins and that's something that uh, as i mentioned in the interview he imitated the way she sang and um and said that yeah the b-52s picked up on it and um that was cool to hear they recognize that
2: you'd, you'd interview paul mccartney you'd interviewed george harrison what were the tangible differences between paul and george and john
1: Well, to be very honest, there weren't as many differences as there were similarities because they all had talked about wanting to go on with their relationships and make that the main part of their lives. George wanted to not record or tour. He wanted to stay home with the woman that he just married and his their brand new son, Danny and um that was um, amazing to hear about and um super cool and then paul talked about raising all of the children that he'd had and and also the ones that he adopted that linda had had and john of course talked about raising sean and how cool that was so that was amazingly similar and It was wonderful to hear that. And not only that, but something I brought up with each of them was how they felt about Elvis Presley passing, because I knew they had all been incredible fans as teenagers. And John, of course, talked about in recording Double Fantasy, he considered part of it singing like Elvis Presley. And and so all of them were were really hurt about Elvis's passing and knew that if he were still alive, he would still be making great music. and they loved his accomplishments
2: one I've got to read just a little bit from the book because it's such a poignant quote. He says, "I always consider my work to be one piece, whether with Yoko, David Bowie, Elton John, or the Beatles. and I consider that my work won't be finished until I'm dead and buried." And I hope that's a long, long time. In retrospect, that is an incredibly touching, poignant quote because this is a man who you understand when you listen to the interview is incredibly happy. Him and Yoko are incredibly in love in this interview, you know, in a in a very positive way. It's not a sort of gushing way, but you really feel this love in the interview. And a man who's looking forward. To let's say taking going on tour at some point um and living his life and his love for his son um is it hard to hear that quote
1: it makes me want to cry every time i hear that about him feeling that way because Yes, he wanted to live and he wanted to keep creating with Yoko and he wanted to keep loving her and raising Sean. And it seemed to be the happiest point in his life because he even mentioned, even though, of course, we didn't ask, that his 18 month long lost weekend time in, in L.A. was the most miserable part of his entire life. And he was so glad that that was over. And so it was so tragic that he was killed and his life ended so shortly after that.
2: Now, as the interview comes to a close, there's the signing of the autographs and then the interview or the tape cuts out. And that's the end, as it were, of the taped interview. Um, What happened immediately after the signing of the autographs? What happened then?
1: Well, we all made plans to go meet for dinner in San Francisco in two weeks, because that's when John and Yoko were going to finally have their West Coast and Hawaii trip. And I was so excited and mentioned things that I wanted to talk about, relationships and Bali. And it was just, it was so wonderful for me to look forward to. And Yoko um, had received a call from her assistant, saying that, you know, they had to get going because the recording session was coming up. And unfortunately, their driver uh, and car were not going to be available. So they had to figure out how they were going to get to the session. So Yoko turned to us and said, can you give us a ride to the studio? And the three guys, uh, Dave and Ron and Bert, we were all catching their flight back to the West Coast shortly after I was the only one staying in New York that night um, to hang out with a friend of mine. And um, so uh, Dave of course said, yes, we'll be happy to no matter what. So then um, uh, he said, so we better get going. So instead of hanging out and talking more, um, Dave and Ron and Bert and I uh, all walked out Well. John and Yoko were getting ready uh, and uh, we're gonna come out in a minute. And we walked out, uh, our limo was right outside the Dakota. And as we walked out, this guy standing amidst all, what I assumed were of course, Lennon fans, um, started bugging us and saying, did you talk to him? What'd you talk about? What were you in there for? That kind of questions. And Bert assumed that he was a fan too. And to shut him up, gave him a copy of Double Fantasy. He had an extra one and said, here, John and Yoko will be coming out in a minute. You can have him sign it then. And um, and then uh, they uh, got in the limo and John and Yoko walked out and John signed the guy's copy for him. And um, then before they got in the limo, we hugged and said goodbye and said, Oh, I can't wait to see you in a couple of weeks. And they were the same way. And they got up and, and the, and the, and the limo left and uh, went off to drop them off at the studio and then take our guys, our KO team to the airport. And I started to, uh, you know, waved goodbye and then started to walk away. And the creepy guy, started following me and kept asking again and again, what did you talk about? What did he say? What was all this about? And um, I couldn't get him to stop following me. And I asked him to leave me alone and he wouldn't. And he kept following me. And I wanted to turn around and kick him in the head. And, you know, but I, I didn't. And one reason that I still feel guilty to this day is why didn't I go to the security department of the Dakota and say, get rid of this guy. He's bothersome. He shouldn't be around bugging people. And maybe they would have been able to get rid of him. Maybe they would have called the cops who would have gotten rid of him. Or maybe they would have just looked at him and seen that he had a gun sitting in the pocket of his coat, which I didn't. But instead, I managed to practically run away from him. And I kept walking to Um, towards my friend's office um, where I went and by that time I was in a great mood again and I told my friend Dave all about wow it was so incredible an amazing interview the best day I've I've ever had with a musician and then we went out to dinner and I was starving because I hadn't eaten since uh, the night before and um, we I'm getting sad I'm sorry and then we went Back to his apartment and right before he opened the door he told me I leave the radio on because if somebody tries to break in they'll hear the radio and think I'm here so they'll go away and I thought oh that's funny and as he opened the door the radio all of a sudden a reporter came on and said John Lennon has been shot and he's at the Roosevelt Hospital and I gasped and I almost fainted, but I ran out to the middle of the street and caught a cab and went to the hospital and saw in the, the front door of the hospital was glass. And I saw as I looked through that door, there was Yoko sobbing hysterically, holding on to somebody I didn't recognize right off the bat. It turned out to be David Geffen. But she was crying so hard. And so miserably, I looked at her and as much as I wanted to go in and give her a hug and say I was sorry, I knew that that would just make her more miserable because I'd spent the afternoon with her and would remind her of that. And I realized just looking at her, John just wasn't shot. John was shot and killed. I just knew it. And even though that hadn't been announced and wouldn't be for actually hours after that, I immediately went to the payphone right next to the hospital and called the RKO Radio Network and told my former boss, uh, former newscaster from KFRC, who was now the executive there, um, what I knew had happened. And she said, well, come over here immediately and we'll start doing interviews and talk to you about it. And I did. And that's how I spent the night. All night. Uh, awake and doing interviews nationally and internationally um, about our interview and of course it turned out to be John's last day on the planet.
2: Did you instinctively uh, know that the killer who had pestered you outside the building was the killer?
1: Well that's something that I felt definitely and when the news came on and announced that John Lennon had been killed, not just shot. And they said they'd already arrested the killer who admitted what he'd done and showed him on the screen. And it was that guy. And that's when I felt just tragic and started crying. And shortly after that, I was told, okay, you've been booked to go on the Today Show the next morning. And I thought, oh, my God that's going to be the worst experience of my life. And it was.
2: I mean, it must come up very often that you, even, even today that you still see that photo of John Lennon signing the murderers double fantasy album. Um, I mean, what does that do to you?
1: It makes me feel horrible that I didn't look at him more carefully and see that there was a gun that he was carrying. Not that I would have recognized it because I don't know a lot about guns, but if only I had, maybe that would have helped, you know? Or if when he followed me, if I had run back to the security department or if I had stopped him in some way, I just, that guilt has been on my shoulders for well over four decades at this point.
2: Have you been able to work on this? I, I'm going to call it survivor's guilt, because in a way, that's what it feels like to me. You know, I I lived through the AIDS era of the 80s, where many people I know, including lovers, disappeared and died. And at one point, it was like, well, why did I survive? Do you know what I mean? That's a sort of survivor's guilt. And in a way, that's what it feels like um, that you've that you've experienced for this huge long period of your life uh, have you never been able to to work through it or has the book helped you go a step further through this
1: well first of all it's really interesting that you would bring up that aspect of survivor's guilt because i felt that about aids as well um, just in dealing with my friends who ended up dying of aids and why didn't i warn them in advance or you know so so i get that completely and yes i've tried to help myself in terms of the guilt i feel about john lennon being shot and killed by somebody that i was in contact with but unfortunately i haven't been able to maybe a tiny bit but not much
2: i mean you talked about the importance of music in your life as an escape from being very very young um did it change the idea of music as an escape for you
1: um well it changed the idea of music as a career for a while um even though that never really happened i did end up doing a lot more music related stuff Immediately, I thought, I never want to do another interview. But unfortunately, I had already been booked by RKO following the John Lennon interview to interview both Neil Diamond and Barry Manilow within a number of days. So I had to, and fortunately, they were both good interviews, but still... I thought, oh, my God, you know, am I ever going to be able to do any more after this? And fortunately, I kept going. And all the way through the 90s, actually, when I was doing the um, um, uh, music video uh, magazines and interviewed so many um, musicians, country and rock and roll and rap and everything for those um as well as as the print interviews i did for rock magazine and and so it never really stopped me entirely but it did make me feel guilty and weird before every after before excuse me before every interview started
2: john died on december the 8th 1980 this interview had been recorded you had to go through it again and again and again for these television and radio and and interviews at that time, because you'd been an eyewitness um, to a part of history. Um, I just wondered, how was there a period where you couldn't go near it again, where you couldn't hear it? And how was it then when you're writing this book? And I presume you must have then sat down and listened to it again.
1: Well, the hardest part of listening to the interview was the very first full-length listening job that I had to do, which was when I got back to San Francisco right after doing the Today Show, and I had to immediately write the John Lennon special, which was originally going to be airing in on Valentine's Day, like I said, but now it was going to air six days following John Lennon's tragic death. So I had to listen to the entire interview to write the show, which I titled John Lennon, The Man, The Memory, and dedicated it, of course, to Yoko. And listening to the interview just made me cry. And that was the hardest thing I've ever written that show. It was just so very difficult because it just made me sad. It wasn't like reliving that day. It was reliving hearing about John's death or him being shot and then seeing Yoko cry and knowing that he was dead. And um, after that, I didn't interview uh, people and listen to that interview again for quite a while. And when I finally did, I listened to it and all of the fun stuff made me feel good. The complimentary, the validation, but the parts where John would say something like, that he wanted to live so much longer, that made me cry all the time and and still does make me feel like crying. And it was very hard writing the book in that respect because it brought up everything that we've talked about.
2: I mean, it's a beautiful book because it relates your life and a lot of it in relation to John and to the Beatles and to the to the people that you met running up to this, um final um interview and this final interview is an important piece of history and it's a wonderful interview and you really feel it's a conversation rather than a sort of (laughs) question answer type interview it's much more than that you can really feel that you're listening during the interview with your responses you're engaged and and i think it's something that serves for us as um, a memory and a positive memory um, of John Lennon. And I know for you, it's a difficult memory, but I think in some way it's we, and I'm speaking for, I think a lot of people are very grateful that you did that interview because it's a very positive and wonderful interview. So in the end, I wanna say congratulations on your book, Um, Laurie, it's a a fascinating read, and the fact that you were at a moment in history is incredible.
1: Well, thank you for recognizing the um, beauty of our interview, because I felt it was a wonderful conversational interview as well. And the photo that John and Yoko and I took uh, after the interview, that's the reason that I used it um, uh, in creating the book cover. I didn't create the book cover, an amazingly talented um, album cover artist and music video director named Mick Haggerty created it and I think he did a wonderful job and I'm very happy with it and I'm glad you liked my book a lot and I hope a lot of people take that as an example and and read it.
2: Well I hope so I'm going to include all the information on how to buy it down here, so uh, I hope that a lot of people buy it because it's such a a valuable book and it is a wonderful interview. That interview is actually um, online and you can hear it on, uh, on YouTube as well. Laurie, thanks very much.
1: Thank you, and thank you for our interview. It was really wonderful as well.
2: Up there is an interview I recommend. Down there is where you can find all the podcast interviews and here is where you can connect. (laughs) Thank <laughs>